I'm Mariana Vieira, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hi, hello, welcome to another episode of Undercurrents, which might very well be one of the few last ones before we head to a summer break. Before that, however, I bring you a very exciting interview with one of the authors in the latest issue of International Affairs, our academic journal. So before we get into that, the May issue features articles on treaties, including the Pandemic Treaty, uh, War and Conflict, Looking at the Congo, Engaging China, and articles on diplomacy and statecraft. Of course, it also features a brilliant book review section curated by yours truly, but that's really not what we're here to talk about today. So Isabel Bremson's article features under this diplomatic and statecraft umbrella, and we get into all the details about her article during our conversation. During our conversation, Isabel explains what the microsociological approach to diplomacy is, which is the sort of framework that she uh, uses in her article. She describes her firsthand experiences in the Philippine peace talks, which she was able to directly observe and then carry on follow-up interviews. And she shares some uh, lessons for negotiators as well as prospects for those involved in the peace talks in the context of the war in Ukraine. So yeah, if you'd like to learn more about what goes on behind the closed doors of a negotiating room, just keep listening. We'll get right into it. Hi, Isabel. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your article in the International Affairs Journal. The article is titled Transformative Diplomacy and Microsociological Observations from the Philippine Peace Talks. We'll leave a, a link to the to the article in the show notes in case you're interested in, in reading about the quote-unquote real thing uh, that we'll be discussing uh, today. But I thought we could start with some context around the article. Why did you decide to write it and how does it fit into your broader research? Well, my broader research is all about the microsociology and microdynamics of interaction in international politics and peace and conflict. So that is violence, nonviolence, diplomatic meetings, dialogue sessions of track two diplomacy, you know, all kinds of interactions that shape the international society, basically, and peace and conflict in particular. So I, for a long time, I really wanted to take part in peace talks, but you can imagine just how difficult it is. To, I mean, where do you start and, and, and who do you contact to be allowed to um, participate in any form of peace talks, especially because peace talks are not just high level, but also, of course, very confidential uh, for good reasons, because you don't want things to come out uh, from the room uh, before the deal is done. So that was my main sort of motivation, trying to find out, okay, can I participate in any peace talks because I really wanted to observe, okay, actually, what actually happens at the peace table? How, how are the dynamics actually between the parties? Uh, you know, what is the rhythm of interaction? What is the things that they would talk about? How do they, the interaction at the actual table interact with the interaction in the breaks and so on? So I was very excited about that. I absolutely want to get into your firsthand experiences at the negotiating table. But I think before that, it might be useful to hear a bit more about what do you mean by microsociological? So I think what you mentioned in the in the article is the microsociological study of diplomacy. How does this differ from any other study of diplomacy, let's say? Well, most diplomatic studies, they are based on biographies, uh, autobiographies by diplomats and politicians uh, who write 
in past sense about their life as a diplomat and everything that they have experienced and so on, all the interesting things, which is great, right? And then there's another branch of uh, literature that builds on more historical material from different kinds of uh, meetings, uh, transcripts that has been revealed after several years, you know, from the archives and so on that can explain sort of the US and China's uh, negotiations in the 50s, let's say. So that is all very interesting. But what does the microsociological, what is the microsociological claim, you can ask? Well, first of all, maybe the method is to look at, okay, how do people actually interact, not just from what they say or what they remember or what is written down, but what you can see actually uh, in their body posture, in their interactions, in their facial expressions and so on. So that's sort of method-wise. But uh, the microsociological claim in diplomacy is taken from Bernard Collins, uh, primarily, uh, who's uh, an American sociologist who has this theory of what he calls interaction rituals. So he says, when people come into meetings or encounters where they are focusing on each other or the same thing, where there's a clear barrier to outsiders, where there's a mutual rhythm, that is, they interact and say, one person says something, the other person laugh or say, okay, yeah, and then back and forth, this sort of ping pong dynamic. All of this type of interaction, that will generate a social bond or solidarity between participants uh, in this interaction, and also it will energize them. So that's sort of the basic theory. And then diplomatic scholars, Marcus Holmes and Nicholas Wheeler, they have taken Collins' theory into uh, international relations and diplomacy to say, okay, actually, this is what can explain why uh, rapprochement meetings, you know, meetings where heads of states come together. The most famous example, of course, is uh, Gorbachev and, and Reagan in 86, I think, where they met for the first time and then their meeting in and of itself transformed their relationship. So this theory is, is being used to say, okay, actually, it's because of the type of friendly interaction that they engaged in and that that could sort of slowly, slowly, little by little, soften up their positions slowly, little by little, soften up their relationship uh, and their positions as well. So what I really wanted to do is to say, okay, how can I observe any of this? <laughs> can I see this uh, happening in practice? Of course, I cannot go back in time to visit Gorbachev and Reagan's uh, meetings, how much I, I wanted. I can look at some of the videos from that uh, time, which is very interesting too, actually, to see how the interaction was uh, translated by a translator and and also their uh, jokes actually were translated which is kind of interesting you know one person says or reckon says a joke and then he, he waits uh, for the translator for Gorbachev to, to react and laugh and then they can laugh together so this whole dynamic of that but but of course that's not the confidential part of the talks that you can observe you can just say you know small clips from from the interaction from that time but really so the the microsociological uh, approach is to look at how do people actually interact and how, what type of bond between them does this generate, uh, be that a tense uh, bond of, of conflict or one of domination or one of more sort of uh, friendly interaction social bond. Mm -hmm. And so you, you sort of deploy this approach in the article to the context of the 2017 third round of talks between the government of the Philippines on one hand and the National Democratic Front of the Philippines on the other. And you sort of open the article saying that you're going to address a puzzle. And the puzzle that you outline is the, the breakdown in talks, despite the friendly interactions at the negotiating table. So this sort of got me thinking about, uh, and without spoiling too much, but obviously trying to understand 
how you come uh, to see this as a puzzle. What are some of the, the pieces of this puzzle that speak to the findings? So what are some of the pieces and the main findings uh, of your article in addressing this puzzle? I think the sort of the article has a twofold sort of finding. First of all, it actually supports the uh, microsociological point that if you engage in these sort of focused, rhythmic, uh, friendly interaction with an opponent, even if it's uh, considered an enemy, that can generate uh, some kind of social bond, if even uh, some kind of friendship uh, between you. And that was very much what I observed at the negotiation table, uh, well, it, they took uh, part in Rome, but the, between the Philippine Communist Party and the government in 17, because definitely uh, some kind of social bond and even friendship had developed between the parties. The, the parties had met since many years, since the 80s, when the peace talks first began. And so the, so, so some of the parties had, had known each other for, for many years. And one of them said, some of us are even friends. Uh, so you know, across conflict divides. So therefore, it was very interesting for me to see, okay, I, I observed very much this friendly form of interaction of uh, focused and engaged conversation. At times, it was a bit slow and, and sort of more disengaged interaction with people less focused and so on, but there was so little conflict interaction uh, and domination interaction. And that, that surprised me uh, as the first thing, because I was I would consider some kind of, you know, very conflictual <laughs> back and forth between the parties or or domination because, you know, it's a government against a resistance guerrilla group. So you can imagine a much more dominant form of interaction from the side of the government. But that did not occur either. So that was sort of the first puzzle uh, for me, like, why are these talks so friendly? But then the second puzzle really arised, as you mentioned, because the talks broke down. Uh, just after I observed them for a week uh, in in Rome at this nice hotel, so for me it was like okay, you know, we have you have such a nice atmosphere at the table. Uh, you have almost friend like relationship between the parties, and then you have the talks breaking down. So clearly, it's not just about having this good uh, relationship uh, to the other side at the negotiation table. There's uh, clearly uh, more to it. That was sort of the main puzzle. I mean, in which case I need to ask, what was your conclusion? I see that the article sort of proves the methodological, the theoretical uh, framework that you're bringing on and you, you, you witness these social bonds emerging. And then at the end, with a breakdown of the talks, what is sort of your conclusion as to, to why that, that happened? Well, the main thing I argue in the article relates to uh, the fact that, well, fine that you have these social bonds emerging between negotiating parties. But if these social bonds doesn't occur between uh, the leaders of the uh, respective parties, then you're not that <laughs> good off. Uh, so Duterte, who was uh, the president and still is for a short while at the time in, in the Philippines, he did not take part in the talks. And there was a whole, I mean, the whole, it's complicated why he couldn't take part. It, it was because he wanted it to be the Philippines. But then Joma Sison, who was, who was the head of uh, the Communist Party uh, did not want to go to the Philippines because he was afraid of getting arrested and so on. So there was, uh, you know, there were good reasons why the two leaders of the two parties couldn't meet. But nevertheless, sort of what I get from both the interviews that I also did and, and the observations also from uh, the interaction between these two leaders is that if they had met face to face for a week, 
over time, I think they could fairly easily have solved the issue and, and the sort of the social bond emerging between them could be, okay, yeah, now should we do this? Yes, I mean, it's not to say that the conflict isn't complicated because it's, of course, entirely complicated. But Duterte at the time, Philippine president, really wanted a quick solution and he was very eager to get one. So, so in case he had... Uh, taken part in the talks, well, maybe that would have made a, a, a change, I think. Uh, so really, I think my main argument in the article that can also be brought forward to other, you know, studies of peace talks or negotiations in, in principle, or more broadly, is that actually, you know, this microsociological outcome of the talks of in terms of social bonding between participants matter a lot. But if it doesn't occur between the leadership and those with decision-making power, then it matters less. You're mentioning lessons for the studies of other peace talks. And as you know, one of the core missions of International Affairs as an academic journal is to publish research that bridges this gap between the halls of academia and the more practical world of policymakers. So if there's anything you'd like to add to that, I'll be very interested to hear what lessons can also the negotiators and those on the ground take away from, from your research. Yeah, well, clearly, I mean, the ideal thing is to have to have leaders taking part, but there are, uh, however, some difficulties uh, in that. Well, first of all, uh, leaders are, of course, very busy and so on, but if it's a very pressing issue, which uh, peace talks really are, then you could say, well, they should take the time to take part anyway. But then the problem arises that many leaders would think that there is a great risk of losing face if they take part in, in talks that then breaks down. It's face-savingly risky for them to take part, and, and therefore uh, they would uh, often uh, not take part unless there's an almost agreement ready in the end, and then they can come in and sign it and, and smile and shake hands and so on. And that's you can also observe now in the Ukraine uh, conflict where Putin, for example, doesn't want to take part in direct meetings with Zelensky, probably because he is afraid of losing face in case the talks doesn't bring about uh, any solution. But if you are to overcome this catch-22 problem where you, on the one hand, want the leaders to take part, but also you don't want them to to lose face before you have an agreement in place, well, one thing is you could have more virtual mediation efforts between leaders because this would be less symbolically strengthful, so you would have less of a a risk of losing face. Uh, And also maybe you could do it more confidentially, I don't know. But at least this could be a way maybe to circumvent this problem that you on the one hand actually want leaders to take place for this social bonding to be generated uh, between them and not only their negotiators, but on the other hand, that being very risky. But of course, the problem with the virtual diplomacy is that it doesn't have the same level of social bonding generating effect that you take part in in these virtual meetings because you don't have the breaks together. It's difficult to really, for example, make a joke because of the small time lag difference when you have a virtual conversation and and you know there's a greater risk of you misunderstanding each other. But at least that could be maybe one way. And so we've obviously we've talked about the role of leaders and the role of those present at the at the negotiation table. But I was also wondering about the role of mediators. So your research obviously stands out because you you were able to observe directly, you were able to be at, at present at, at the table, but also follow up with interviews. As a neutral observer, what can you tell us about the role of mediators as potential gatekeepers of negotiations? 
Well, there are different roles that mediators can play in negotiations. Some play a much more engaged role where they can translate misunderstandings between the parties uh, and they can sort of uh, direct the conversation, make sure that it's focused and not debate-like, but more dialogue-like. But the Norwegian approach is much more uh, hands-off in the terms of they open up the negotiations uh, with the opening remarks. But other than that, they don't say anything at the table. So it's mainly uh, that they have meetings, bilateral meetings with each party and sort of helps the parties with all kinds of uh, things that they would uh, need, not just a nice coffee and food, but also, you know, uh, any kind of expertise in terms of uh, law or whatever they would need for them to make a good peace agreement. So in terms of what mediators can do, I mean, to promote this social bond, they can maybe make sure that the conversation is, is focused and engaging, uh, but also make sure that there's uh, plenty of space to have more unofficial talks, uh, you know, in the hallways or in the coffee breaks and so on. Great. It sounds more like they have this role as like facilitators at the negotiation table. Indeed. So what the Norwegians did was mainly that they facilitated, but sometimes when the parties, they couldn't come any further on a particular issue, then they would call for a break. And then uh, the parties would have a break, sometimes for hours. And then when they came back, uh, they actually solved the issue. <laughs> so uh, the microsociological learning from this is that breaks enable a, a completely different type of uh, interaction than you would have at the actual table. Uh, so the, at the table, it can be very stiff. You have uh, you know, formal way of approaching each other and you have the parties and you have, behind the parties you have their constituencies and different civil society representatives and so on. Uh, and this whole sort of setup makes up a relatively stiff type of conversation, whereas in the breaks you can have a much more direct and focused and maybe more <laughs> laughing uh, and heuristic type of uh, interaction where you can much more easily solve out, okay, why is this? Oh, okay, yeah, now I get it. And so, so that was uh, also I interviewed the parties. Why is it that these breaks did help the parties so much in terms of uh, reaching solutions? And that was really the main thing, that it enabled a, a completely different type of interaction. This is so fascinating also because you mentioned the example of Zelensky and Putin, which is, I wanted to talk a little bit about the context in the war of Ukraine. And I sort of, at this moment in time, cannot imagine these breaks taking place in such a friendly atmosphere. And maybe it's just the limit of my of my imagination with everything that's going on. And so as a, as a final sort of diversion to, to the war in Ukraine, you might know that earlier in June, the Ukrainian president Zelensky said that uh, the peace talks with Russia stood at level zero. Do you see any prospect of meaningful, peaceful talks with the conflict in its current state? And what dynamics would need to change to make the negotiations more fruitful? Well, first of all, to, to address the first part of your <laughs> puzzle that you mentioned in your question, this, do they even have these friendly breaks? And, and of course, I don't know at all. You know, it's a very, very tense environment and much more tense, of course, than the Philippine case. But at least, I mean, I also interviewed Syrian negotiators who took part in, in the Geneva talks and they described how they facing uh, the opponent over several days. Actually, after three days, one of the participants said, well, I was surprised that the other party said something and uh, we actually laughed. So even in Syria, which is also very, very uh, tense and, and with a lot of enmity, even their parties sitting face to face over several days, spending time together, eating meals together, 
can have this sort of we call it uh, approachment effect. You know that uh, there's a little bit of a uh, it's not rapprochement where you're friends and happy and everything is nice, but it's approachment. So you get just a little bit closer to the enemy, a little bit greater sense of trust, a little bit uh, softening up positions, but it's very fragile and it can fall apart very easily. And that's of course also the case in the Ukraine talks where the talks actually did go fairly well. At least that's what the parties told us on Twitter and elsewhere in the beginning where they said, oh, we are negotiating uh, formulations and we will meet again tomorrow and we have different working groups. Uh, So that really gave me a sense that actually it's quite comprehensive talks that they were having, not just ceasefire talks, but really trying to sort out the formulations of a potential peace agreement. However, now, of course, the prospects of a peace agreement are not very good at all. Uh, and <laughs> uh, if your question was, uh, what can be done uh, at this stage? How can we promote a more, you know, better peace talks uh, or peace talks at all? Well, one way might be to include the US and other parties to sort of imagine the talks to not just be between uh, Ukraine and Russia, uh, but to say, okay, it's not just an issue uh, of uh, you know, Ukraine and Russia, but it's a, it's a greater issue. And that could maybe soften up a bit the position of Russia uh, in terms of territory and so on to say, okay, now we get to uh, talk to the US much broader and have uh, a broader conversation about the security uh, infrastructure in Europe or whatever. So that could maybe change the dynamic. But other than that, it, the prospects are not very good at all. Uh, yes, and as you mentioned the U.S. initially, I sort of thought, wouldn't it be more of intensifying the rivalry and make people sort of sit away from each other in sort of their pre-assigned groups? But as, as you were explaining how it can actually bring the conversations into what they're essentially about, so the, the more like the first order questions, then I started to see a bit more of what, what the microsociological approach would be. And at the same time, then I thought... Well, but surely isn't that, to play devil's advocate, isn't that giving Russia what they were actually after, which is an opportunity to discuss this? And then I thought, no, because discussion sort of took place. So I think in in, in the two minutes that you took to answer that question, my brain sort of went through through a bit of a roller coaster. And and thank you so much for outlining a prospect that maybe uh, whoever's listening will will take on to their advisors (laughs) and you'll be able to, to put it in practice. But yeah, those are all my questions for today. Thank you so much for joining me, Isabel. Thank you. That's it from me today. And I know you might be surprised given how long the episodes tend to be when I'm one of the hosts. Uh, However, if you didn't make it all the way here and if you enjoyed the episode, feel free to rate us, uh, subscribe to the podcast on your podcasting platform and leave a review, which helps others find uh, the podcast more easily. If you're interested in international affairs research, you can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And to keep up with our latest issues, you can subscribe to our newsletter on the Chatham House website. We have a new issue coming out indeed in July, which my colleagues have put together and has a special section on feminist interrogations of nuclear politics. Of course, it has as well a magnificently curated book reviews, but I I might be biased. Uh, I will not go on about it. We're really looking forward to, to the reception to this issue as well. So if you're interested, keep an eye out for it. So that's really it for this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it and thank you for listening.